Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. I'm not the only one alive here, I hope. <laughs> um, this morning I'm preaching from Ephesians. And Ephesians is full of uh, lofty ideas. Uh, ideas that uh, soar off into the heavens. And uh, sometimes ideas that dig uh, deep inside. And uh, I want to focus this morning on three mysteries that are discussed in Ephesians. And uh, the, these three mysteries are the mystery of God's redemption in Christ, the mystery that God is uh, forming a family, a kingdom of God that's composed of, uh, the way it's presented here is uh, composed of Jews and Gentiles. And uh, then the third one, the mystery of the church. And uh, two, two things I want to say here in the beginning. Uh, the one is that Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I am going to be reading a fair amount of scripture. And I feel guilty to say unfortunately because we should never apologize for reading the scripture. But uh, maybe the challenge is to read it in a way that uh, people don't go to sleep because it's certainly. Uh, can drone on, depending how you read it, but it's, it's, uh, I'm reading it because it matters. And uh, the other thing I wanted to say is that uh, I confess uh, to um, struggling with uh, which translation to read from uh, because, because uh, some of these passages of Scripture in the King James are quite challenging, and even in the New King James, they're quite challenging. And sometimes I found it very helpful to read in a different translation and uh, and have my have my mind shocked out of knowing what the next word will be before I ever get there. Sometimes that's helpful. So. I will probably read out of several different translations this morning. I have a Bible with four in it here, and I think I have a few, one or two other translations in my notes. So let's start with the mystery of God's redemption in Christ. Ephesians says quite a bit about redemption in Christ, and some of it is uh, quite simple and some more complex and lofty. So, I'm beginning here in chapter 1, and I'm going to read the uh, first 14 verses. And I'm reading uh, here from the New Living Translation. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. 
I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. And I want you to notice the heavenly realms. We will talk about that. Even before He made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in His eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into His own family by bringing us to Himself through Jesus Christ. This is what He wanted to do, and it gave Him great pleasure. So, we praise God for the glorious grace He has poured out on us who belong to His dear Son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom with the blood of His Son and forgave our sins. He has showered His kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us His mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill His own good plan, and this is His plan. At the right time, He will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For He tells us in advance, and He makes everything work out according to His plan. God's purpose was that we Jews, who were the, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, He identified you as His own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom He promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that He will give us the inheritance He promised, and that He has purchased us to be His own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify Him. So I'll stop there. So, uh, in Ephesians, as in many places in the Bible, when it talks about a mystery, it's talking about a truth that had been hidden in the past but is now revealed. So, this is not, the mystery is not something we cannot know. It is something that is being or has been revealed that wasn't revealed in the past. The mystery here, the truth revealed, is that God purposed to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth to Himself in Christ, or through the work of Christ. Uh, we have redemption through His blood, 
the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. So, this is God's purpose through Christ, through Christ's death, through Christ's shedding of blood on the cross. This, this brings forgiveness. This brings reconciliation. This brings people back to God. So this is the truth revealed. This is the mystery. The mystery revealed is that according to His good pleasure, in the dispensation of the fullness of the time, He will gather all things together under Christ. All things in one, in Christ. All things in heaven and all things on earth. So here is uh, J.B. Phillips' rendering of this. It is through the Son, at the cost of His own blood, that we are redeemed, freely forgiven, through that full and generous grace which has overflowed into our lives and opened our eyes to the truth. For God has allowed us to know the secret of His plan, and it is this. He purposes in His sovereign will that all human history should, shall be consummated in Christ, that everything that exists in heaven or earth shall find its perfection and fulfillment in Christ. So, uh, what we see here is God's good plan is to bring everything God has created in heaven and on earth together under the authority of Christ, under the Lordship of Christ, to bring everything into harmony with God, to bring everything into harmony with God's purposes, uh, to work in God's purposes to work in such a way that His, uh, that His best goodwill eternal purposes for everything He created comes to its full its fullness. And this sounds like um, I, I had I had a conversation with dear brother John D. Martin about this subject. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna lean on that a little bit this morning when I make this radical statement which um, I am very open to anybody's thoughts about. Uh, this sounds like uh, the redemption and reclaiming and reordering of everything that God has created. It, it, almost, it almost sounds like universalism, like everything is going to be brought back to God. And He will be he, he will be the Lord and sovereign and bring everything he's created to, to its, uh, into its full purpose. Uh, like God winning an ultimate battle and bringing everything he created 
in heaven and earth into harmony with himself and his purposes. And uh, I confess, I do not understand that, and I'm not claiming that it's teaching universalism, but it is talking about something God is up to beyond what many of us probably think about. So, here's, um, in a practical way, the question, I think, a question for us to ponder is whether or not we are being brought more and more into harmony with God and His purposes where we are. Uh, obviously, we can't control the world, and we're not God, and we can't accept our redemption of everything. It's not our role. We can engage in the world around us and the people around us and try to live in the kingdom of God's life where we are. So that's the question, I think. Are we becoming more like God, more in tune with His desires, more in tune with God's goals for us personally and for His world and for the world near hand? Are we understanding and engaging more fully in His kingdom goals? Who He wants kingdom members to be? And how He wants kingdom members to live? And in that way, we do participate in God's reclaiming. And uh, we trust God to um, accomplish the bringing into harmony with himself of everything he's created in heaven and earth in his own way, in his own time, however however that is. And I, <clears throat> I am quite sure of this, that whatever, whatever God accomplishes in these areas that we don't know hardly what they mean, we will be happy with it. Okay? We will be happy with what he does. We're not going to be disappointed, whatever it is. There's a mystery of Christ's grand and glorious and mysterious person. And his place or role in God's grand and glorious redemption. Uh, I want to talk about that a little bit. So, in these verses... Uh, grace and peace are available to us from the Father, ministered to us through the Son. So the Father is the source of all blessings, all spiritual blessings, all, all blessings of any kind. And uh, the Father has blessed us in the heavenlies, or heavenly places, or heavenly realms, because we belong to Christ in chapter 1, verse 3. So, <clears throat> I wonder, where are the heavenlies? Where are the heavenlies? Okay. So, in chapter 1, verse 20, uh, the realm, it, the heavenlies is the realm to which Christ has been raised to the right hand of God. Uh, I suppose the term we would use for that is heaven. In chapter 2, verse 6, the heavenly is the realm to which believers have been raised with Christ. So we are sitting, or we are present with Christ in the heavenly, where He is. 
some of these ideas uh, stretch the imagination. Maybe that's good. In chapter 3, verse 10, uh, the heavenly is the realm in which rulers and authorities observe the church and come to understand the manifold wisdom of God. So, this really is, I, I believe, a rather powerful passage, that idea that, that someone, some, someone called rulers and authorities are observing the church of God in order to understand the manifold wisdom of God, like, like uh, these rulers and authorities don't have any other way to, to gain insight into what, what God is up to. And then when these rulers and authorities, whoever that is, observe the church, uh, they learn something about the wisdom of God or what His plan is, what He's trying to accomplish. In chapter 6, verse 12, uh, the heavenlies is the place where a spiritual battle is going on. Which I wonder if chapter 3, verse 10, the rulers and authorities, isn't connected to chapter 6, verse 12. The same idea. But the place where a spiritual battle against non-flesh and blood evil rulers and authorities uh, do battle. There's a battle going on in, in this realm. A battle against evil. Um, wicked spirits, perhaps, in the unseen world. And I believe what Ephesians is teaching is that God, that Christ is present in this realm of battle, where this battle is happening, Christ is present where evil is um, being battled out, the battle against evil. And he does, Christ does spiritual battle against evil in this realm. So, uh, one lesson here, I believe, is that Christ does not, he has not, and he does not abandon. Us, his people, when when evil is present, all believers dwell with and are seated with Christ in the heavenly, where Christ is and where Christ dwells, and He dwells with us. Not only He dwells with us in the heavenlies where we are. So Ephesians 3, 16 and 17 says, Paul prays that God would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So Christ dwells in the heavenlies, and we dwell with Christ in the heavenlies, and Christ also dwells with us here, and is with us in the heavenlies here. 
Does that make some sense? The fact that Christ dwells with us and we dwell with Him means that we are never alone in our battle, in our struggle, um, in doing our exercise, Galen. Although, uh, I did think about this, that uh, Galen, that uh, as I get older, I, I uh, think I realize more and more that the only, the only true time of rest that you and I are going to have is um, on the other side. That, that, is, that doesn't mean we despair of this life, but that is true. There is a rest, according to Hebrews. But although Christ dwells with us and we dwell with Him in the heavenlies, the intimacy of our belonging relationship with Christ and the extent to which Christ can battle against and defeat any evil that we experience, I think, depends on the extent to which we are uh, surrendering to His presence and work in our situation. Yes, Christ works in His presence, and he's able to do way beyond anything we can imagine. But there is this thing of, of human cooperation with and surrender to and letting him into the battle that we are in. Christ cannot defeat evil and the devil in the heavenlies if we are uh, taking care of ourselves in the earthly. And then uh, Colossians 1, 26 and 27 talks about the mystery of Christ too. It's connected to this. And it says there, the mystery of Christ is that Christ is in you. This is a hidden a truth hidden in the past and now revealed. Uh, but the interesting thing there is that the mystery of Christ in you is spoken of there in terms of Christ in the Gentiles. So there's a mystery. Through the cross of Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. Reconciliation, unity of mankind. That's a mystery, how that happened. And it's a mystery that through the resurrection of Christ, Christ becomes the head of all things, the Lord of all, able to subdue all, uh, able to bring us into harmony with Himself through His resurrection. And the fullness of Christ, according to Ephesians 1, fills all in all. Christ fills every part of his creation. Uh, and I think uh, Colossians 1, maybe 16 or 17, says that Christ not only fills all, but holds everything together. Everything can consist, I think, of the King James Word. Because Christ holds us together. Christ raises us up above sin, 
to live a blameless life with Him in the heavenly Christ gifts. Gifts to the church, to His people. Christ gives His people and gives the gift of people to the church. I think that's what He's teaching. So that the church might grow unto the measure of the fullness of Christ. Uh, okay, so some of these ideas, I feel, I feel um, talking up here. I feel uh, a little bit like I'm saying profound things, but I don't know what to say. That's how I feel. The risen Christ is seated in all His glory at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. Ephesians 1:20 and 21. And he's working to establish his rule in the hearts of people. But this is clear that the Christ who is seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenlies is also seated with you or standing with you in the present. In the heavenlies. You're in the heavenlies too, where you are. The next mystery, the mystery of the Holy Spirit, the grand and glorious and mysterious work of the Holy Spirit is spoken about in Ephesians fairly often. He indwells, the Holy Spirit indwells those who believe in Christ in chapter 2.22. He is the seal and earnest of the promised inheritance. The fact that, uh, the fact that we possess the Spirit that the that the Spirit possesses us right now is the ground for assurance that we will uh, receive the, the eternal inheritance. The Spirit helps people in prayer. The Spirit is the means of access to God along with Christ. Yeah. Sorry to make things complex. The Spirit is the means of wisdom. The means of wisdom in the things of God and enlightenment in the practical details of life. The Holy Spirit present to comfort, encourage, to lead, to speak, to give direction. The Spirit in chapter 4, verse 3 is the source of unity in the church and the giver of all good gifts. In chapter 4, verse 7. Okay, the next mystery I have is the mystery that God is going to form a family, a kingdom of God composed of all people of the earth. Uh, in Ephesians and Romans and other places, this is spoken of in terms of Jews and Gentiles becoming one family of faith, brought together by the death and resurrection of Christ. So in Ephesians 2, uh, beginning in verse 11, this is a number of verses, and I'm reading from Philip's translation. Do not lose sight of the fact that you were born Gentiles, known by those who were circumcised, known as the uncircumcised. In other words, 
the Jews to circumcise thought of Gentiles as the uncircumcised, which is like saying the heathen. You were without Christ. You were utter strangers to God's chosen community, the Jews. And you had no knowledge of or right to the promised agreements or the covenant. You had nothing to look forward to and no God to whom you could turn. But now, through the blood of Christ, you who were once outside the pale are with us inside the circle of God's love and purpose. So once outside, but now you can be inside. For Christ is our living peace. He has made a unity of the conflicting elements of Jews and Gentiles, of Jew and Gentile, by breaking down the barrier which lay between us. By his sacrifice, he removed the hostility of the law, with all its commandments and rules, and made in himself, out of the two, Jew and Gentile, he made one new man one new person, thus producing peace. For he reconciled both to God by the sacrifice of one body on the cross, and by this act made utterly irrelevant the antagonism between them. That sounds like there is absolutely no reason for people to be in hostility toward anybody. That's how that sounds. That's what I thought when I read it. By, by Christ's sacrifice on the cross, he made utterly irrelevant the antagonism between Jew and Gentile. Then he came and told both you who were far from God and us who were near that the war was over. And it is through him that both of us now can approach the Father in the one spirit. So, you are no longer outsiders or aliens. Now, he's talking to us, you know, these Gentiles. But fellow citizens with every other Christian, you belong now to the household of God, firmly beneath you in the foundation. God's messengers and prophets, the actual foundation stone being Jesus Christ himself. In him, each separate piece of building, properly fitted into its neighbor, grows together into a temple consecrated to God. You are all part of this building in which God himself lives by his spirit. In chapter 3, it is in this great call that I, Paul, have become Christ's prisoner for you Gentiles. Then he says in chapter 6, Pray also for me that whatever I speak, whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly, fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in change. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. 
And the mystery of the gospel that Paul is referring to there is the mystery of Christ's salvation extended to the Gentiles. So, in, in these passages, Paul is saying that a long-standing but not fully understood mystery, intention of God, has now become clear. And that is the intention of God to bring the heathen or the not-my-covenant people, Gentiles, into his covenant family. This, this is the revelation of the gospel. Uh, so, Ephesians 2.12 says that prior to Christ, Gentiles were like aliens. They had no rights of citizenship. So we hear a lot about aliens today in our world. people who aren't citizens, and do they have a right to do this or that or the next thing if they're not a citizen, which I don't intend to be political this morning. So the aliens, they had no right of citizenship in God's covenant family. They were outside. They were without God, and they were without hope. That's what these verses say. They were ignorant of God. And they did not have a relationship with God. And then, that's what verse 12 says, 2.12. And then 2.13 says, Paul abruptly moves from that hopeless sort of position, the sad plight of the Gentiles, and says that in verse 13, Gentiles are now united to Jesus Christ through Christ's shedding of blood on the cross. Gentiles are no longer far away from God. They have been given opportunity to draw near to God, to belong to God in God's family. And God's purpose all along was to bring Gentiles and Jews into close fellowship. into close harmony, into one family, through the blood of Christ's cross. And I'm emphasizing in the blood of Christ's cross because, because the Bible teaches that that is the means of reconciliation. That's the basis for forgiveness. It's the basis for deliverance from anything that hinders uh, harmony between us and God and us and other people, the cross, the shed blood of Christ. And that in itself is a mysterious reality that is hard to explain. That doesn't change that it's true and that it works, even if you can't explain it. By uniting people with Jesus Christ, the Father of all humankind intends to unite all people with himself. Unite all people with himself and Christ, and his purpose is to bring all people into unity with each other. That's God's purpose. In his body on the cross, Jesus broke down the wall of hostility that separated Jews and Gentiles. 
I have many notes here. Bear with me. These passages teach us that all people, whether Jew or Gentile, no matter the culture, no matter the denomination, we trust and follow Christ. These people belong to Christ and they belong to each other. There's only one family of God. There's only one body of Christ. And the mystery, the truth revealed, is that because of the blood of Christ's cross, Gentiles and Jews can belong to the same family. Now, question, how does the cross of Christ remove the hostility between races and cultures and humans who disagree with each other or people who have hurt one another? And it's a very real question, and it applies to all of us, because all of us have been hurt by people, and we have all hurt people. And probably we have all had sinful, selfish attitudes toward certain people, certain cultures, and have had thoughts about them that that in our mind reduce them to somewhere uh, less, less respectable than what we are. And of course, uh, probably, you're like I am, your mind says that that's sin. But what does the cross of Christ and the shedding of His blood have to do? What can it do to remove this hostility or this attitude? that we can have. So, Christ has removed, according to Scripture, Christ has removed the hostility in His own flesh body through His cross. That's what the Bible says, but I'm like, what does that mean? Jesus himself is the solution to hostility and conflict. Christ bore to the cross and suffered and died for every sin that separates people from God and each other. That's what the Bible teaches. In Christ, our sins against God and others can be forgiven. In Christ, the sins others, others have committed against us can be forgiven. We can forgive others. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm saying that's what the Bible teaches. The basis for our hostility against God and others is removed through the shedding of Christ's blood. So now we can belong to each other. Now, chapter 2, verse 15 also makes a comment that seems to answer the question of how Christ's cross removes hostility, and it, and I don't I don't understand this. I don't I don't. Okay, but it says it. So if you can help me with this, I'd appreciate it. It says the basis for enmity seems to be the law of commandments contained in ordinance. And it's referring to King James, and it's referring, I believe, to the Old Testament law. And the same idea is in Colossians 2, which says, And when you were dead in your wrongdoings, 
doings and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our wrongdoings, having canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. I'm sorry, that's all convoluted, whatever, it's King James. Okay. It is saying that, that the law and its judgments against people has been nailed to the cross, and the basis for hostility has been removed. Now there is room for forgiveness. I don't understand all that, but I think that's what it's saying. Uh, it seems to me like Paul is saying that Christ's shedding of blood on the cross is the basis for God's forgiveness of our sins against God and our sins against others. And Christ's shedding of blood on the cross is also the basis for us to forgive others' sins against us. So the basis for our hostility is removed. I'm not sure what to do with that. Okay, that's, that's just like, okay, we don't have a basis to be in hostility. Is that just to care of it? So forgiveness removes the need for hostility and separation. I'm thinking of other issues, but I can't go into them right now. Okay, so one question we need to ask ourselves is whether or not we feel hostility toward people. People who think we think they think different than we do. Maybe they do, maybe they don't, but we think so. People who think or believe or look different than we do. So the, the question I struggle with, maybe this is not your struggle, but my struggle is, so what do we have to know, or what attitude does the Bible and Holy Spirit and Christ tell us that if we had it, it would be possible for us to receive and respect and view people who trust in and follow Christ as true believers, even though they are different than we are. What, what attitude or frame of mind or belief or what? What would this say? What would it require of us? What, what attitudes, another question, what attitudes or beliefs would I or we have to let go of? What attitudes or beliefs do we hold on to? that we would have to let go of in order to view other people the way God does or the way Jesus does? I don't, I don't know the answers to these questions. They're probably quite personal, actually. What, what would this require of us? to believe that people who are who are actually trusting in Jesus and intending to follow him, that they actually belong to God and God's family. And and uh, as it's spoken of in Romans four, and they have Abraham as their spiritual father. 
And I wonder sometimes if it's easier for me to accept and receive and respect and respect a believer on the other side of the world than it is on the other side of town. Or maybe on the other side of the house. I'm sorry I said that because I am getting along famously with my wife. Okay, but I'm just saying, you know how easy it is to have an attitude. And it can be over anything, about anything. So, it's easier to love people who are far away than people who are near hand. So, that says something, too, about what's going on for us. And sometimes I think, uh, I'm kind of stuck there a little bit. Sometimes I think we put everyone... Uh, who, lead, who leads us in the category of First John 2, uh, where it says, uh, let's see, the world is passing away and also its love. Um, children, this is in a number of verses, it's kind of at the end of a number of verses. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be evident that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. And I'm not sure what all that means. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar except the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you heard from the beginning remains in you. If what you heard from the beginning remains in you, you will also you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. Uh, so, I, I just want to clarify, in that passage, the people who went out that he's talking about are people who denied that Jesus had come in the flesh. They were Nazis. They denied that Jesus was full of humans. They denied that Jesus had a full of human body. They denied that Jesus had come in actual human flesh. Because Jesus could not be fully human and fully divine. And so, uh, in First John 4, we read, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but set the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard is coming, and now is already in the world. So I know I'm raising maybe a thorny issue, but uh, I think
think sometimes uh, I have or I've heard people say things that uh, they, they weren't in the context of what the Scripture was talking about. So I, I struggled quite a bit in my mind and in my heart uh, with this issue of how to make a choice uh, uh, decision about how to live my life, and uh, and I realized that there are other people who claim to be believers, read the Bible I read, and uh, they make a different choice, and then I'm in this thing of what does that mean about them? Uh, what's that say? And I struggle with the idea that. We are, if we are different, one of us must be a believer and the other must not. And um, I think over the years I've come to a uh, maybe more mature understanding of these things, but they can be kind of challenging. Now I want to mention one other kind of thing related to hostility, uh, another form of hostility. That, that has become very common in our day. And um, <clears throat> I uh, notice this problem, or I hear about this problem more when, um, when I listen to the news or read the news. And, and I, I, I wasn't sure if I should say anything about this this morning. Um, but I'm going to, and I, and I will uh, depend on you, brothers and sisters, to um, keep me out of trouble. Okay? This is the hostility that many people have toward people whom they consider guilty of what they call systemic sins. And I feel a little bit like this is dangerous because I'm not sure if I understand what people mean by systemic sins. Uh, my understanding is it's um, the condition, the idea that the condition of the whole organism or organization is guilty of sins and abuse. The idea that even the systems designed to stop these sins are guilty of these sins and perpetuate these sins. And uh, the way I have experienced this personally is um, is when when I'm engaged in some activity designed to address an evil, uh, but because I'm a Mennonite or I'm a white or I'm uh, educated, whatever to whatever degree I am or am not, that I am therefore I fit into a category that disqualifies me to have anything to say there because I'm part of this abusive system. Did that make sense? What I said? Do you understand what I said? Um, so, just an example of this is the uh, law enforcement, police, uh, uh, the idea that they violate laws whenever they try to enforce laws, which 
be mine. But then, so law enforcement should be defunded and dismantled. Um, so here, here's my statement. Uh, the belief, this, this is what I struggle with, the belief that everyone who is part of a group of people, like white people or black people or Asian people or men or women, any place, the idea that if, if you are in a class of some kind, that you are therefore guilty by just being in the class of certain sins. Even if you never committed it, you forgive it. And what I want to say about that is I think the difficulty I struggle with is that that does not allow me or you or anyone to actually address the particular sin. You can't respond based on a fact of I did that, I didn't do that. The fact that you're in the class, you're guilty. Do that make sense? I don't know. I don't think the Bible actually teaches that. And I don't know. I don't know uh, what. It makes it impossible, I think, to address individual sins and remove hostility between individuals because you're in this class. It's a class thing. I just want to say, I'm open to instruction and correction about this. It's just it's something I think about. I, I wonder sometimes how much it affects it. This morning, uh, the thought came to me uh, that the mystery that Christ's shedding of blood removes, removes hostility between God and humans and between humans the thought came to me that this speaks into the present situation in our church of misunderstandings and negative attitudes that we that we can have uh, toward people who um, are thinking something different than we are, have a different feeling about something, and this this is very common. We are not strangers. Okay. My dear wife and I don't think the same thing or feel the same way about a variety of things. It doesn't make her evil. I don't think she thinks it makes me evil. Okay? This, this is just a reality of living in the world. I'm, you know, I'm just, all I'm saying is highlighting that. Uh, we, we do need to consider, I think, how we think about what attitudes we have and uh, what kind of statements and actions we have uh, when, when we feel like I'm in this camp and someone else is in another one. Can we, um, can we find a way to um, forgive and receive and respect? And I think we can. I think we want to. So here is the mystery, the truth revealed that both Jews and Gentiles and all people of all cultures can belong to the same family of God, can belong to the same church. Despite past sins they have committed against each other, there is a path forward in forgiveness and receiving. And 
And by the way, I think Romans 14 and 15 actually addresses this in very practical ways in the days in the days and meat issues that's brought up, and it's talking about the differences between Jews and Gentiles in the same local body. Okay, my last point here is the mystery of the church. Uh, the grand and glorious and mysterious eternal purpose of God, which is which God is fulfilling through Jesus Christ, His Son, and working out through the church. So the church is, according to the church is in union with Christ in chapter 5, just as the husband and wife are in union with each other. The church is in union with Christ, and no one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. We are members of his body, as the scriptures say, a man leads his father and mother and is joined his wife, the two are united into one. This is a great mystery. But it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And the mystery, the mystery of a husband and wife being one, and the mystery of Christ and the church being one, in union and in harmony, in a love relationship, Working together to achieve a common goal, this is a truth revealed. The church is being united into one with Christ, and Christ is the head. And, and Christ is our head to the extent that we are uh, in a uh, submissive relationship and a harmonious uh, uh, interactive relationship is the word I want. To the extent we are in an interactive relationship with Christ, He, he is our head, will be our head, and we will be submitted to and cooperating with Him in His grand and glorious purposes. The church submits to Christ not in a servile way, but in a union of love and respect. In chapter 1 of Ephesians 19-21, the church is under Christ and is filled with the presence of Christ. And, and I think the extent to which you and I, and as a body, we are um, in union, in harmony with Christ, this, this is uh, the extent to which we experience His presence and work among us. We all, we all know these things. The church is Christ's body, and uh, my body and your body, generally, does only what your head dictates. Sometimes we don't, but that turns out to be a problem. Okay, so we are the body of Christ. He's the head. The church, in chapter 3, Ephesians 3, is revealing, displaying to the heavenly host the wisdom and glorious purposes of God. And uh, sometimes I think we forget. Well, we, we are displaying the purposes of God to the heavenly host, but we are displaying to those around us as well. Uh, the church is displaying to the heavenly host and those around us the eternal purposes of God. The church is like a building, Ephesians 2, 19-22, and the building belongs to God. 
We are not God, and we don't own the building. Christ is the cornerstone. The foundation of the building is people. Apostles, prophets, believers. We make up the body. We grow on teachings, instruction, Christ. Christ holds this body together, this building together. The building is joined together and held together and rises to its full stature by the work of Christ. Christ grows the building up. And the building that Christ builds is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. I'm just repeating myself. The challenge here is to have as lofty. I, I feel this to myself. I think it's a challenge. Is to have as lofty and grand a view of the church as Paul has. Okay, it is easy to view the church as very human and very fallen, stumbling, composed of wood, hay, and stubble. I'm not trying to be critical. I'm saying this is a challenge. We struggle to believe that God can grow the church into a beautiful edifice because it is composed of people like we are. Or sometimes in our weaker moments, we think it's composed of people who are less than we are. Which, of course, is wrong. But how do we maintain a lofty and grand view of the church? What, what is it? It's my question here. I'm back on. What is it? that makes common, lowly humans able to be viewed as a building that is joined together and held together and is rising to its full stature by the work of Christ. Well, what is it that makes it possible to have that point of view? How, how can we believe that Christ grows the building up and the building that Christ builds is a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit? And I believe part of the answer lies in placing our faith in God instead of in people. Trusting in God's work in people instead of trusting only in people. Trusting that God has a goal in mind for humans. And He has a purpose in mind that He is striving for. He has a goal in mind for his church, a goal or end or fulfillment that he is working toward. And will in fact achieve in due time. Okay? In due time. And I'm sorry, it, it might be God's idea is it will be achieved in eternity. But let's not give up on God's eternal purpose. We need a vision of God's goal, God's purpose, uh, instead of, I don't mean to be critical here, saying it to myself, instead of being stuck in the present reality, in the present moment, in the present failure, in the present disappointment, or present condition. And uh, those of you who know me well know that I can do that. I can get stuck in whatever is not working. So we need, we need uh, our eyes to be lifted up to God's eternal purposes. And, and we're participating in it. And that doesn't mean we just ignore whatever is not God's will. But we are being moved along by God's eternal purposes. So what is 
God's vision for his universe was to bring it into harmony with himself, for his God's vision for people was to grow them up into his full purpose for them, to reconcile everyone to himself in Christ, to reconcile everyone to each other, uh, to bring people into belonging relationship with himself and with each other. So the grand and glorious mystery is that we have been chosen by the Father in love to be adopted into His family through Christ's shedding of blood on the cross. Uh, we cannot experience God's blessing, God's purposes uh, for us in the present if we turn away in the midst of maybe fear or in the midst of pride. Um, and fail to, if we fail to surrender, not only perfectly, but as we're able, we can't experience these grand purposes of God if we turn away in fear, pride, and don't surrender to God, to Christ, and whatever it is He wants to do in us, through us, for us. Uh, so I'm going to finish with um, a little homework, which I know we don't do homework. I'm not going to collect your homework. But uh, whenever you are in a struggle with the devil or with temptation or feelings of hostility or bitterness or uh, I cannot forgive somebody, uh, the homework is try to notice it. Try to notice that is what is happening right now for me. And try to present whatever it is that you notice to Jesus and invite Jesus into it. And it doesn't mean that you will be immediately perfected, but God does delight in working and defeating. Uh, evil in the heavens, which is where you are and where Christ is. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you this morning, Lord, for your word and for the mysteries, truths revealed in your word. That we can be with you in the heavens and that you have eternal purposes for us in the heavenlies, where you are and right where you have us. And I pray that you would you would reveal to us how to live in this world in respect, um, in harmony with you, in harmony with others. And teach us, show us how to live, how to belong to you, how to belong to others. And continue your good work of bringing us, bringing us each one into the fullness of who you created us to be. Your eternal purposes for us individually and for your body, the church, and thank you. Amen.